Hello, Sean here. Welcome back to another episode in this series about prehistoric cave art. Um, we've been getting really into the weeds, or the clouds, whatever metaphor you want, with all this confusing Deleuze and Guattari stuff, and we began with some pretty speculative stuff about prehistoric animation and proto-cinema. So I think it'd be probably worthwhile to go over a more standard understanding of cave art studies in its history, something a little more normal. But luckily, once we go over these basics and get ourselves more grounded in the history of cave art, some really mind-blowing stuff emerges if you know where to look. Um, but that'll be in a few episodes. The story of cave art typically goes like this. 13,000 years ago, a rockfall sealed a cave entrance in Spain. Then, a little under 13,000 years later, a tree fell, disturbing some rocks and opening up the cave once again. Then, Don Marcelino Sanz de Satuola, a Spanish landowner and archaeologist hobbyist, found paintings in this cave eventually called Altamira, paintings of many animals, the extinct steppe bison, horses, deer, boar, goats, anthropomorphic figures, as well as handprints and geometric symbols. Sans de Satuola published his findings in 1880 using the very catchy, very eye-grabbing, enticing title, Brief Notes on Some Prehistoric Objects, from the province of Santander. People heard that title and went absolutely batshit, ravenously breaking into bookstores and tearing pages out of the printing presses, trying to acquire the text with such a revelatory title. <laughs> I know I always do this, but I'll only stop making fun of old book titles when they stop sounding ridiculous to me, and I haven't encountered any early signs of that. Anyways, this marked the beginning of archeological interest in non-portable cave art, because portable Paleolithic art was already known about, although scholars underestimated its age at this time. Altamira is about a thousand meters long with art throughout and evidence of habitation at the mouth. Modern day studies have found that the art seems to have taken place over an immense period of time, between 19,000 and 11,000 years ago. So the art of Altamira was created over a period of 8,000 years, the time between us and Jesus multiplied by four. I said that this marked the beginning of archaeological interest in prehistoric cave wall art, which is true, but it didn't mark the beginning of archaeological acceptance of it. The dating of the art to the Paleolithic by Sans de Satuola caused an uproar among scholars, and after a huge debate, at the 1880 Congress of Anthropology in Lisbon, a well-known scholar in the field, Emile Cartelac, sent Edward Harley, a prehistorian and railway engineer, to date the art independently. He reported back, saying that the art was actually not that old. In fact, it had been painted just a few years earlier. One of the reasons is because the paintings of aurochs, like these uh, extinct cows in Europe, have quote-unquote mistakes, i.e. 
they don't look super similar to the real thing. So Harley deduced that whoever drew it must not have seen Aurochs with their own eyes. Um, which, you know, maybe some of you see the problems with that. <laughs> First of all, there's the obvious fallacy that the person saying this apparently knows what an Auroch truly looks like, even though they're extinct, even in the 1800s. Right? Look at that foolish painting of an Auroch. There are so many mistakes that clearly the, the artist never saw them with their own eyes, says a guy who never saw an Auroch with his own eyes either. Secondly, this is an illustration of what Matt Rosengren calls the mimetic curse, where accuracy of representation compared to the real thing is taken heavily into account in analysis of cave art, or where people think that all images should be understood primarily by figuring out what it's a picture of and how best it represents that thing. There's a few versions, but Edward Harley's dismissal could be like a guy in the year 2350, after some sort of collapse, looking at a painting of Picasso and going, well, this is obviously a fake. I mean, <laughs> that's not at all what a table looks like. There are many artistic traditions that don't seem to be trying to figure out how best to represent things, you know, in terms of realism. Like there's, you know, artists uh, are creative. They might create other ways of uh, making art, right? In fact, this argument of th this mimetic curse is often used more recently as a way to argue for the legitimacy of the prehistoric cave art. Like, like people notice certain details that only people with in-depth knowledge of the animals would know. Like, mammoths apparently have a skin flap that goes over their anus to protect it from the cold, which I didn't know and honestly didn't really need to know. But the point is that this form of argument persists. People go, look, the painting has the mammoth asshole flap, therefore it must be prehistoric. Um, it exists usually in the exact opposite form of its use in the 1880s. And, you know, this more modern version of that argument does strike me as more legitimate, something to take a bit more seriously than the guy who never saw aurochs judging some other guy for never seeing aurochs. But, you know, it's a good thing to keep in mind, this idea that, you know, maybe the goal isn't to represent something faithfully. Another interesting thing about this beginning of cave art studies is posited by Jan Bizant, or Jan Bizant, an archaeologist who says that Sans de Setuola's dating of the cave art might have been rejected not only due to the arguments against it, but because such works of art somewhat similar in style to the style of the 1800s, um, at least according to some of the time. That, occurring, that art occurring such a long time ago would throw a wrench into the new, at the time, theory of evolution. So it's kind of funny. The scholars who believed in evolution were less likely to accept what later was accepted as the truth, that the art was from the Paleolithic than the religious scholars who rejected evolution. This divide was partly regional. The French scholars were usually fiercely secular, and the Spanish ones were usually still quite religious, like, like treating the book of Genesis as a fact kind of religious. Only when the 20th century began and more Paleolithic cave art was discovered, like three of the ones Watchtel visited, Lamuth, Cambarel, Font de Gomme, 
you know, this sort of stuff led to scholars being like, oh shit, oh my god, I am, I'm so sorry, Mr. Satuola. Unfortunately, by this time, Don Marcelino Sanz de Satuola had passed away, never living to see his theory accepted. This happened in 1902, and it's generally said to be when Emile Cartelac, the guy who sent the railway engineer prehistorian dude to date the art in 1880, uh, he, two decades later, wrote a mea culpa, mea culpa d'un skeptique, saying that he and most everyone else was wrong and Satuola was right. After he visited some caves in the Le Ise region, on August 14th, 1902. So this date can be seen as the beginning of modern cave art studies, um, since its existence was now widely accepted among scholars. Like maybe we can say there were two uh, beginnings, one with Satuola and one with the acceptance two decades later. In the text, Cartelac says that he had made, quote, an error committed for 20 years, an injustice that must be acknowledged and made reparation for publicly. For my part, I must bow to reality and render justice to M. de Setuola. So these are two good lessons illustrated here. You can come to inaccurate conclusions if you just judge art based on your own culture's standards, like realism in this case, and you can come to inaccurate conclusions if you take the linear progressive evolution of history as an as an axiom, as a fact. Before we go over what followed, I should mention that there is, of course, an earlier history that precedes what I just went over. Or maybe it's better to conceptualize it as a larger history containing that history. Because the discovery of the true age of the Earth was a pretty recent thing at this time. I mean, it still is in the long scheme of things. In the early days of modern science, you had people doing things like like the Archbishop James Usher in the late 1500s, first half of the 1600s, calculating that the world was created in 4004 BCE, um, using scientific precision for ideas very much based in religion, in other words. Funnily enough, soon afterward, Bishop John Lightfoot made an even more precise claim. Creation occurred at 9 a.m. on October 23rd, 4004 BCE. But then in 1830, Sir Charles Lyell published his text called Principles of Geology that suggested that the layers of rocks and minerals show that the Earth is much older than suspected. In 1836, human history was divided for the first time into the Stone, Bronze, and Iron Ages by Danish archaeologists. This linear trajectory became universalized, um, although that's not exactly true when you look at all cultures on Earth. Like some skipped the Bronze Age but worked with iron, stuff like that. Anyways, then came Sir John Lubbock, who if you remember back to episode 1 in this series, he's the guy who likely birthed the idea of cavemen as a term and concept that stuck when describing and imagining prehistoric humans. Another thing he did in 1865 was divide the Stone Age into two, the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. 
The Paleolithic involved hunting and gathering, the Neolithic involved farming, and the thing that caused the former to shift into the latter was the famous agricultural revolution. Also around the 1860s was another major shift in the belief of the scientists of the time. Right around this time was when the existence of the Ice Age was accepted. And not just the Ice Age, but also the idea that during the Ice Age, there existed a bunch of animals that are no longer around. In other words, there's this whole context of science in general, especially fields very relevant to cave art, like geology, that are a very big part of the story as well. So, with that in mind, let's continue on through the history. After Emile Cartelac published his Mia Culpa, and scholars and laypeople alike were astounded at this new world they were uncovering, decade by decade, or rather, an old world that was new to them, <laughs> a much older world than had been assumed. After it was accepted that the art in the caves and on the plaquettes, remember, don't forget the plaquettes, uh, was from the Paleolithic, of course the next question for prehistoric scholars was, well, what on earth were these so-called cavemen up to? Why did they make the art in the first place? So let's take a look at the history of the interpretations of cave art. When Cartillac admitted his and his field's mistake, the intellectual arena in Europe was still very much in this linear, evolutionary mode of thinking about human history. This idea that all cultures fall somewhere along this straight line from savage to civilized, the thing that made lots of the non-religious scientists more skeptical of Sens de Setuola's claims. So early interpretations often still thought in this way. They were like, hmm, oh, well, fuck, okay. So we were wrong with the, about the age of it, but prehistoric people were still stupid. So, <laughs> you know, come on, read Darwin. So, huh, how can we make this beautiful, complex art they made still match with their stupidity? The solution for many was the interpretation that can be called art for art's sake. This one actually was more popular in the 19th century, I think, so maybe about the portable art more, or maybe just people who didn't always sway in line with the academic majority and were like, yeah, we, th we think that Satuol is right. I don't know. But anyways, art for art's sake was this idea that the art was simply beautiful to look at. That's why they made it. And this doesn't sound too disparaging superficially, does it? It sounds like a fun time, right? So-called civilized people like to look at beautiful things too. But the disparaging part comes from how they got to this conclusion. The thinking was that all cave art was merely decorative because primitives and savages are so primitive and savage that they don't have an understanding of the symbol. Artistic symbol, not like semiotic symbol, I think. I don't think they went so far as to say that primitive people didn't speak. Uh, there's another issue here beyond this reasoning, something we went over in episode 3.2. The use of the word art is not as innocent as it may appear. There's a whole lot you can explore when you complicate that concept. Another thing this interpretation maybe implies is a higher level of individual inspiration rather than a social one. That's what I read at least. Like, I don't think it necessarily does. Like, I think that a group of people can collectively create something just because it looks nice. 
but I haven't read these turn-of-the-century outdated arguments. I've just read about them, so maybe this implication is in how they say it, or how they got there. Regardless, this interpretation, art for art's sake, was discounted for a few reasons. One reason was related to that question that we've encountered before in a few different ways. If art was just made to be pretty, why do it in the treacherous depths of the earth? Just do it above ground, you psychos. <laughs> Come to think of it, this theory does mesh well with sophistry, because I can imagine some 1890s scholar being like, well, maybe they painted deep within the treacherous, narrow, dark, asphyxiating depths of the earth because they were just that fucking stupid, dude. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> um, that wasn't the only reason against this theory. A big part of this hypothesis at the time that I didn't mention is that the thinking was that prehistoric hunter-gatherers had a much lower population. They didn't have to contend with ecocidal empires and states and companies, so they had tons of available food, so much that they didn't have to work hard for it. They could just sit around and paint and stare dimly and simply at their creations. But even this early on, scholars started to note still existing traditions of cave art, like among the Aboriginal Australians, and many of these cultures, <laughs> like the Aboriginal Australians, didn't live in bountiful, lush gardens of Eden with, you know, fruit that you can pick from trees all year round. And, you know, often these people didn't have tons of leisure time. South Africa is another example that was beginning to be known about. The rock art of the sand people, especially, also known as Bushmen, who we'll come back to next episode. The point is that scholars, as the world shrunk, were beginning to see other examples of cave art traditions, and they were like, yeah, people don't... It, it seems like art is kind of a human thing. It's not just a thing humans do when they have enough free time for it. Finally, another reason for the art for art's sake explanation was that primitive people were too unsophisticated for religion, but James George Fraser's famous text, The Golden Bough, a study in comparative religion was published in the 1890s, showing that, no, all sorts of people have religion. So this hypothesis was quickly fading already by the time that prehistoric cave wall art studies gained credibility in the field broadly with Cartelac's Mia Culpa. The next predominant hypothesis was probably begun in a 1903 article by Salomon Reinach, who used insights from the nascent field of anthropology to hypothesize a relationship between magic and art for these Upper Paleolithic peoples. This hypothesis can be called totemism or sympathetic magic. It's a form of argument that's still debated today, an analogical argument. The idea that the best way to get an understanding of how Paleolithic people lived is to look at cultures today who we think live most like the Paleolithic people. Cultures like hunter-gatherers, for example. There's all kinds of debates about this, as you can imagine. For example, hunter-gatherer cultures who lived on the coasts had to deal with expansionist empires and states first, compared to hunter-gatherers who lived in, like, you know, the depths of the Amazon or something. Coastal regions are often very bountiful, and there's lots of archaeological evidence that shows ancient coastal settlements all over the world, um, but any coastal hunter-gatherers 
after centuries of dealing with these, you know, expansionist, imperialist, colonialist cultures in the modern era, they stopped being hunter-gatherers over the years for a variety of reasons, um, or they were killed. The hunter-gatherers that still exist are often found in regions that are harder to access, like the Amazon rainforest or the mountainous regions of Papua New Guinea. So, you know, there are all these things like this that, you know, maybe this biases our understanding of hunter-gatherer cultures in general. So maybe we're getting a skewed perspective if we take this, um, if we take the hunter-gatherers that exist now and try to extend them back into the past. The specific way that anthropology was used by Reynak and others who argue this theory was by looking at Australian Aboriginal cultures and some North American indigenous cultures who practice totemism. And there's also a few differences in whether we're talking about totemism or sympathetic magic. They're not exactly synonymous. So let's start with totemism. I'm sure most of you have heard of totem poles, um, or maybe not, I don't know. I live in a place where totem poles are, so maybe that's not a worldwide thing. But the word totem means something broader. It means using a specific species of animal to represent a clan. Like, over here is the horse clan, over there is the bison clan. This interpretation would mean that particular caves with cave art were kind of like totem poles, the art representing a clan, or the art would represent stories of different clans. This interpretation has been discredited for a few reasons, like the fact that the number of species of animals represented in various caves doesn't seem to match up in any way that made sense with this theory. Another interpretation, one that Reinach proposed, uh, that we can call sympathetic magic, was based on another group of Australian aboriginals, the Arunta. This hypothesis is that the Paleolithic people painted images of animals because they thought that by painting them, they could control them or make their hunt be more successful in some what we would call magical way. The famous prehistorian Henri Bruel also took up this hypothesis. Uh, he's also known as Abbe Bruel because he's a priest. Just mentioning that in case I call him that later. This hypothesis was very flexible to both its benefit and its detriment. Like, you could kind of explain anything with it. Wow, look at all these paintings of large herbivores. These are the animals that the Paleolithic people ate. So I think that they painted them to magically increase the efficacy of their hunt. Oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you found a cave with lots of carnivore paintings. Huh, animals that they didn't really eat, according to archaeological evidence. Well, you know what? They were probably painting them to magically obtain their strength and hunting prowess. <laughs> you know, the fact that any new piece of data could be interpreted with some type of magical explanation made people be like, so you're kind of just guessing then? <laughs> uh, like, you know, good scientific theories are supposed to be falsifiable, right? Not just infinitely malleable. The next predominant hypothesis, reaching its peak in the 50s and 60s, was begun quietly, surreptitiously, in the field of cave art studies, when Max Raphael, in 1945, questioned Bruel's theory of sympathetic magic, wondering if, instead of what Bruel was doing, viewing the images as individual, separate things, maybe it was better to view the images as relating to one another, 
entangled with each other on the cave walls as a system. Maybe something could be learned by viewing, for example, Lasso as a whole, made up of all the instances of cave art, their positions, and along with everything else involved, like the landscape surrounding it, the structure of the cave. Maybe the ostensibly individual, separate figures actually relate with each other in meaningful ways. A quick example of what this might look like is being like, maybe instead of just noticing that sometimes felines, cats, were painted and engraved on cave walls, then copying them individually, theorizing about them individually, maybe instead we should look at where they're drawn in relation to other animals. If you do that, as some of these scholars did, you, you find that there's a sort of pattern in the caves of France and Spain that felines are often drawn on the outside of the areas where the main art is. Like, like if there's like a lar the largest passageway with the most art, the cats would be drawn instead in like little peripheral passageways or like in the very end. In Lasso, there's one called the Diverticule of the Felines. Great band name. That's what I mean by relations or relationships between the art. Nothing too complicated. The cave art figures aren't like asking each other out and kissing under the bleachers or anything. Relationship just means how they're positioned and sized and stuff in relation to all the other figures, in relation to the structure of the cave, that sort of thing. What Max Raphael was presaging was structuralism, the next big trend in cave art studies. Raphael seems like a very interesting and tragic figure. In 1940, he was in a concentration camp, being Jewish and living in then-occupied Paris. But in, by 1945, he had published a book on cave art that came to conclusions that would become predominant in the field only a decade or two later. And then in 1952, he died by his own hand in New York City. Structuralism, beginning with the linguist Ferdinand de Saussure in the first decade of the 20th century, before eventually expanding into other fields in the subsequent decades, focused a lot on relationships. Like here's an interesting philosophical question. Does darkness have meaning without light? Like if we lived in some hypothetical universe, where there was no such thing as light, would there even be such a thing as darkness? Or would, or would what we call darkness just sort of be? <laughs> structuralism gets very complicated, it seems to me. I don't know that much about it. But a big part of structuralism are these binaries. You can think of others too. Male, female, it's a big one. There's a big one in cave art studies too. So when talking about cave art, do bison have a meaning independent of horses? Or does the fact that they are found painted or engraved together in so many European caves have something to do with their meaning, a relational meaning? Raphael analyzed the art in certain caves and noticed some of these binaries, like in a cave in Spain, there are female and male deer. In Lasso, there are horses and aurochs. In another French cave, it's horses and bison. You know, he, he kept coming across these sort of binaries of related animals. And he interpreted these binaries as being oppositional. He likewise interpreted certain geometrical signs also as oppositional, representing a female-male binary. And 
if two things are in a binary opposition, it's a relationship, right? Like, you're not looking at things individually anymore. You're saying that a key to understanding this one thing is that it's opposing this other thing. It has this relationship to this other thing, and vice versa. Next in this history, we come to André Leroy Garin and Annette Laming Emperer, figures that came several years after Raphael, writing when structuralism was predominant in academia at large. So they were the ones who made it the predominant way of looking at cave art for a while. Laming Emperer wrote a book on Lesseaux that had an interpretation of art that had many similarities to Raphael's theories and focused less on magic and more on symbol. She flip-flopped a bit through her, throughout her career of cave art study, first agreeing with Raphael about horses and bison representing different sexes, then disagreeing, opting for an explanation that, again, followed Raphael, that the art was important in social formation, specifically of the different clans, as well as representing foundational myths. Her methods are still in use today, now aided by computer programs. André Leroy Garin was the supervisor of Leming Emperor's thesis, but his most influential cave art books came after her work, like building upon it. Leroy Garin also followed Claude Lévi-Strau, a French dude who was a major figure in bringing structuralism out of linguistics and into anthropology and archaeology. Levi-Strauss thought that all societies have languages, kinship systems, and myths that are based around binaries, but categories made by humans always have discrepancies and outliers. The point of myths is to resolve these contradictions, but it's never really successful, so more myths are created. This is like the engine that produces myths. Another big thing he argued was that so-called primitive people didn't fundamentally think differently from so-called civilized people. Leroy Garand agreed with him on this. The two of them crossed paths in their lives, since they both worked for a time at the same anthropological museum in France. Leroy Garand published two influential books on prehistoric people in the late 50s, early 60s, which followed Emperor and Raphael by seeing the figures painted in caves not as individual instances, but as a part of a collective, a collective composed of relating parts, a system. He also followed Levi-Strauss' focus on binary oppositions to explain these relations. Unfortunately, Leroy Garand's overall idea about cave art is pretty hard to sum up. It's pretty complicated. He said that he didn't have a hypothesis, he had a labyrinth of hypotheses. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you can imagine how, how confusing that labyrinth would be. But, but we should look at a few examples of what he was doing. Um, like, for one, he divided all the animal species in European cave art into four categories, and thought that two of these groups, small herbivores and large herbivores, formed a binary opposition, and the other animals were peripheral animals, and out of this he made what he called a mythogram that he thought was the schema of Paleolithic French cave art, a kind of mental template that organized French Paleolithic cave art throughout its existence of 20,000 years. 
Leroy Garand didn't just see the individual figures and symbols as being part of a larger whole, relying on a relationship. He also saw cave art not as isolated, not just as art that happens to be in a cave. He saw art as being in a relationship to the structure of the cave itself. He paid attention to where the paintings were in the caves and divided up the caves into a few basic areas. The entrance, the main areas, the side areas, and then with this he was able to propose further patterns and schemas. He thought that the animals and symbols that represented maleness were found in all places of the caves, while the runs that represented femaleness were found in the more central main areas. He said that the deeper areas, the endpoints of the cave, were where the dangerous animals were located. Leroy Garand said that cave art was, quote, the expression of ideas concerning the natural and supernatural organization of the living world, unquote. But like we were talking about with sympathetic magic, the goal in a theory like this is to be predictive and falsifiable. If you look at cave art we know about and develop a theory about how it works that's precise like this, like Leroy Garand's was, it should predict how any new caves that are found should look. It was different than the super flexible theories of the early 20th century that could be adapted and molded to whatever new data was collected. This was more scientific, it could be falsified. And as new data piled up, as new caves were discovered, Leroy Garand's theory seemed less and less true. This coincided with structuralism going out of style in academia broadly after the 60s. Um, although it's still important, like what came after it is often referred to as post-structuralism. So like it's defined in terms of structuralism. Kind of kind of a binary, right? <laughs> um, there are other reasons for it going out of style too. Like a big part of this theory of Garand's involved looking at the central area of caves and peripheral areas and looking at the animals in each. But anyone who's been inside a cave before knows that it's usually pretty hard to figure out which part is central and which is peripheral. Like, often that dichotomy doesn't really make sense. It's the sneaking and diverging of the cave doesn't always obey that logic. It's very much like a the logic of a human house or something <laughs> applied to caves. I haven't done a deep dive into his work, but reading knowledgeable people's opinions on it, it seems to me that some of the criticisms of his interpretations of caves criticizes this sort of circularity that some of the followers of it, or Leroy Garand himself, sometimes fell into. Like, hmm, this area contains things representing maleness, therefore it's a side passage. <laughs> hmm, this figure is a bit ambiguous, but it's in a side passage, so you know what, I think it's one of the animals that represents maleness. Hmm, this geometric symbol, is it more of a narrow symbol or a wide one? Well, it's not in a central area, so it's a narrow one representing maleness, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, uh, from what I can tell. Like, developing this theory and then analyzing new caves in ways that make them follow the theory, but to do that you have to ignore stuff or really twist what is there so that it fits. But sometimes people criticize this theory from the opposite end, for being too inflexible. I'm guessing this means that if you don't skew things to make them fit in the theory, the theory doesn't really hold up when it comes to new discoveries. This is what we were talking about when, you know, 
we're seeing that when more and more data came in, his theory seemed less and less true. So, you know, it it is good that it's inflexible, right? It's it's falsifiable. It's kind of funny. The magical explanation for cave art that Bruel gave was discredited due to its flexibility, while Garand's structuralist explanation was discredited somewhat due to its inflexibility. Maybe it might sound like both of these are bad, but you know, Leroy Garand's hypothesis was more scientific if it could be discredited by data. Something else to keep in mind is that this discrediting of significant parts of Raphael and Pereira, Garand, the other structuralists, it, it came from problems with their specific structural explanations, their specific theories, not a discrediting of structural explanation, explanations in general. It's entirely possible that with the combination of new data and new interpretations, that someone could provide a stronger, more correct structuralist hypothesis. A better theory that lays out how the cave art is in a meaningful relationship with all the other art and with the cave it's contained in and the cave's specific structure. Maybe the individual signs and figures relate to each other in some way. Maybe the cave full of engravings and paintings is more like a composition than a museum, you know? But. You know, there's always a possibility that there is a correct structural hypothesis. After Leroy Garand's theories and structuralism in general went out of style, nothing new took its place for a few decades in cave studies. Most researchers kind of shied away from developing grand theories and simply contented themselves with gathering data and analyzing single sites or, you know, very specific regions. There were some, a minority, who still looked for a structural explanation, just a new one that fit with the data. Another minority thought that the cave art was a way of transmitting information, like maybe using the unique environment of the cave to affect the mind of the people receiving the information. For example, like juveniles going through initiation rites that reinforced customs in the caves, aided by this art. Or alternately, maybe it was information exchanged between different communities that were in increasing contact with one another as population density increased. But most were just content with recording, gathering data, and analyzing single sites. And next episode, we'll look at what became, you know, although it's still very much argued about, it's not as predominant as structuralism, I think, but something that we can probably refer to as the new theory of cave art that's predominant in cave art studies. Next episode. Talk to you then. Thank you.